and welcome to episode 20 of the Trans Questioning Podcast, a podcast about my journey coming out as transgender and coming to terms with that. I'm your host, Sarah, which sounds weird coming out of my mouth today for some reason. And this is episode 20. I can't remember if I said that in the intro. Oh, boy. So I got some stuff to talk about today. It's, you know, it's a podcast. That's what we're all about here is talking. So we're going to be talking a little bit about agency and selfies as uh, as encouraged by the artist Carter Manier, who was previously on the show, and uh, there's I did an interview with her that was really cool. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about a piece she wrote and uh, some of my own thoughts in that direction. But first, just some general life updates. Number one, sorry if there's a bit of a buzz in this episode. The AC is running and I don't want to turn it off because it's like 95 degrees outside and I would be dead very quickly if I turned it off. So hopefully noise reduction gets rid of that. But if it doesn't entirely, I'm sorry for the bad audio quality, but this is a free podcast on the internet. So if you don't like it, go somewhere else. That's a good attitude to have with your listeners, right? Just, just get out of here if you don't like it. Anyway, so I previously talked about my plans for starting HRT in August, and obviously my plans keep fluctuating. Um, there's a lot of different factors that keep coming in and out of the picture. I am going to Italy in July, as I've said previously, and there's a lot of money involved in that. And so, yeah, I was planning on starting HRT in August, but I got an email from my university. Well, so the part of the reason why I, I was planning on starting in August was, you know, it'll be cheaper and a little bit easier uh, take out one one more middleman in the process of starting HRT if I have insurance because the place I want to go to has the best reputation of the three that are available here. Uh, they outsource your blood work to elsewhere if you don't have insurance. And so just having to deal with multiple parties is really frustrating to me, I guess. So I was going to wait until I had insurance in August when I enrolled, it's really fucked up that they give you the choice to enroll in student insurance. I think it's fucked up in general that insurance is something you have to pay for. I mean, I'm one of those liberal assholes who think that like healthcare should be free for everybody and that it shouldn't be like a business. Anyway, I, uh, I've opted out of it for most of the time that I've been at university because it's like, why would I pay a thousand some dollars for the, the, the possibility of not having to pay a bunch of money in the future when I, if I get sick and it's like, oh, I'm a healthy young person. I'm not going to get sick. It's fine. I don't need insurance. So, you know, that's always a good way for things to be it's very healthy. That's why everybody's going to die young, probably including me. Anyway, I got an email from the university that uh, pointed out that there's a summer 
open enrollment for uh, for insurance, which I somehow forgot was a thing. And I did some mental calculation and calculus and uh, another word that has calc in it to make, you know, rule of threes. And uh, I decided uh, to hell with it. I'll just go ahead and get enrolled in that. And uh, I have done so. And I'm waiting for my insurance card to arrive. And presently, my plan is to start on HRT in June. Uh, which there's a there's a compelling argument to be made that starting HRT, starting second puberty right before leaving the country for the first time in my life where I'm going to be studying the first and second world wars with a group of strangers in a country I've never been in, uh, which the subject of the first world war especially is, is, is close to my heart. I don't know if that's maybe the right way to put it, but it's something I have spent a lot of time researching and we'll be actually going to sites where, I mean, we'll be going to trenches and stuff so, you know, starting HRT, everybody reports that it's like, oh, man, I cry at the drop of a pin now. Uh, and, you know, just generally being very emotional, potentially more irritable. So maybe it's a bad idea to start that process, you know, right before this big, huge life change. And I mean, my roommates... Uh, who I've lived with now for two years and who have been some of my best friends for even longer. Uh, one of whom has been my best friend for 14 years. Yeah. Uh, they're moving to California and I'm staying here and, um, we're not, not exactly departing on the best of terms. Uh, there's a previous episode of this podcast that is called, uh, uh, emotional breakdown ASMR and that one kind of details some of the emotional strife that's going on between us um, which we don't need to get into but the, the the long and short of it is that as as their departure looms uh, within a week the emotional baggage of it all increasingly comes to the fore and there's other stresses like trying to find people to live with. And I, I have one friend that I've been planning to move in with for a while or have them move in with me. And there was another friend I'd lined up who uh, had to cancel the plan, you know, a week before that was needed. So that's kind of thrown me for a loop. Um, luckily, my other friend had kind of a backup person. So hopefully that'll be OK. I guess we'll see. But anyway, um, there's that which is already going to be very emotional and dealing with an empty house for a while, which is always difficult for me. Uh, I'm, my my friends are probably not going to move in immediately. And there's 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 going to be some solitary, some solitude involved. So there's that. There's the emotional element of going to Italy. Uh, and I'm going to be staying there for a few days after the program ends, just sort of on my own. And that's terrifying. And I don't know what I'm going to do 
with that. But uh, that's on the on on the docket. Um, and then, you know, going into my last semester at university, finally graduating after too many years <laughs> for undergrad and dealing with the baggage of, you know, not not um, not having as much family to report back to with stuff like that, you know. There's there's already been a huge undercurrent of, you know, wishing my parents were around to sort of talk to during this process. Like this year has been one of very, very serious self-discovery, which is, you know, why this podcast exists. But I guess it's been on my mind more recently because um, Mother's Day and Father's Day have have, of course, they're in close proximity to each other. And I think Father's Day is either has either happened or is about to happen. It's not necessarily within the purview of my interests to keep track of these things. So I don't know. Uh, I thought Mother's Day had passed like a week before it happened because I saw a bunch of ads for it and then nothing. And then they dropped off the face of the earth and then they came back. So I don't know. Marketing. Anyway, um, all of that is to say that I'm already in in an emotionally um, precarious place. We'll put it that way. So maybe starting HRT now is is probably not like the the most sound choice. And that's fair. But I have something else on my mind that is kind of fueling this thought process. I worked on a documentary a few years ago. I guess it would have been three, three years ago. Uh, basically, exactly. Where um, it was one summer uh, working on this documentary with some friends. The director started on this documentary. There's a, um, a, a an architect who has has a really interesting reputation in history and uh, uh, his story really needs to be told. I find the subject matter of this documentary immensely interesting. And um, I feel like the documentary has the potential to be something really, really cool. And it was one of the coolest projects that I'd ever worked on. But so uh, a lot of the people who are associated with this architect uh, have spread to many different corners of the country. So we had acquired the budget to fund a week and a half long road trip. I think it totaled... 12 days um 12 days for me i think the actual trip was like 10 days because i had to travel and stay the night somewhere but uh it was uh, uh, uh we went from here in oklahoma we had our first interview in kansas city then we went west and we hit denver and then we went to albuquerque and then we went south to where did we hit? I feel like we hit somewhere between there and San Diego. Maybe we didn't, but we traveled along the border, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, until we hit San Diego, and then we went north to Cal- to Los Angeles, and then we went from there to San Francisco, and that was when our last interview was. And from there, we basically we we had budgeted a- an extra day 
to hang out in uh, the many, many amazing parks in in California uh, and uh, along the way. So we stayed the night in. Um, uh, 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 wow, why do I have? It's not Yellowstone. It's not the. It's not the Grand Tetons. Um, um, fuck the the one with the the wow why can't i remember yosemite jesus uh we, we stayed in we stayed the night in yosemite valley and that was that was really cool um uh we arrived there at night and it was not just a full moon but it was the blue moon so it was this immensely luminant night and we went to the the spot where all of the pictures of Yosemite Valley are taken. And uh, there was like two people there and um, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. So it was full moonlight. And uh, our director of photography set up a group shot where it was a long exposure. So we all sat in front of that valley and uh, uh, he took this long exposure picture. And looking at that picture, you can't tell that it's nighttime except for the fact that at one point I moved my arm and you can see the mo- the the blur that that added to the exposure otherwise it just looks like day it's so interesting uh but that trip was was magical there was a lot of places that I'd never been that I'd always wanted to be um we visited the great sand dune in I believe it's in Colorado. That's basically just an eroded mountain that is like a a mountain of sand that's in the middle of Colorado that's by mountains. And it's it's unbelievable. There's something about it that's just breathtaking in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But um, yeah, there were just like so many sites and I love road trips in general. Um it was it was just it was a really cool trip and i had a very bad time um and it had nothing to do with the trip itself or the people involved and it had everything to do with the medication i was on i was on um was it bupropion i believe yeah that's what it would have been which is um uh uh it's basically a medication that combines two of the most common uh, uh, drugs that are used for to treat depression. No, I'm thinking something else. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that bupropion uh, has a, a known side effect of causing anxiety in a lot of people and irritability, and it had that effect on me. Um, and I had yet to decide that that was not a worthy trade-off for the minimal improvement in mental health that it gave me. So that whole trip, I was stressed out and 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 um irritable and i stuck to myself a lot of it and it was you know i remember that time a lot more fondly now because you know i'm three years removed from it and the memories are more of the pictures that i took but at the time it was like i couldn't enjoy myself i had a really hard time feeling the weight of the places where i was and you know, it's hard to say how much of that was truly because of my medication and how much of it was the fact that uh, I was back then still deeply closeted and deeply confused about my identity. And there's a very real way that that takes away 
your ability to process reality, which actually is something that I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, but it wasn't just that. It, the fact of my emotional state made the trip actively worse for everybody else, which isn't to say that I ruined it. I didn't. Um, it was it was a good time, but I had a hard time connecting with them, and I think they all felt like I was... Uh, I, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't a good companion. Um, I wasn't a good traveling buddy. And I later on did explain to them cause I'm, you know, friends with everybody, uh, uh, almost everybody on the, on that crew. I did later explain to them why that was like, I, I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't know that it was because of my medication, but I explained to them later that that was the case and they were very understanding and it wasn't a big deal. You know, I, I didn't get in the way of filming or anything. We got what we needed and it was a great time. And I loved that trip. I uh, also saw a lot of really amazing houses, but that's beside the point. But so as I am approaching yet another huge trip, um, you know, I've never been out of the country before. I have, it's not, it's not even like I've never been out of the country before and I'm going to be there for three days. So, you know, I need to hit the sites real fast. It's, I'm going to be there for over a month and there's going to be a lot of traveling from city to city and just like living day to day in a, and, and not just in a different place, but in a different culture, in a place where they don't speak, there were not as many people speak English, where it's not the 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 uh, primary language. That's something I have no no encounter with, and I don't know how it's going to affect me or how it's going to you know change me or the challenges that it will present. And part of how I've funded this trip is through uh, grants and scholarships that involve a follow-on project. So I'm going to be documenting a lot of my trip through audio recordings and video and stuff like that, and I'm going to cut together some kind of something to capture that experience, um, which I am certain will uh, bleed over into this podcast to some extent. I'm sure I I plan on recording uh, episodes while I'm there. And... um, as I'm as I'm facing this huge trip, I I very much I, I don't want it to be like the 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 documentary trip. I don't want to feel like I'm I'm too wrapped up in myself to enjoy and appreciate what's actually going on. I don't just want to be there. I want to I want to feel like I'm there. I want to feel the weight of the place where I am, you know, I, I, I don't want to visit these preserved world war one trenches or even, you know, we're going to go to the Colosseum, you know, I don't want to go to Rome and not be able to, to step outside of myself in a, in a, in a specific way because depersonalization is a, 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 a part of 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 being uh, transgender un, untreated, so I don't know. Maybe that's a contradiction in terms, but to be able to just feel, I guess when I say step out of myself, what I mean more is let go of my terrestrial worries and just absorb the the metaphysical weight of the of the place 
So I guess it's it's less stepping outside of myself than it is burrowing deeper, but in a way that is less, you know, burying myself in the artifice of my exterior than it is stripping away the exterior and wearing wearing the 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 fact of the basic foundations of my existence i don't know this is getting weirdly uh pseudo philosophical and we don't need to go down that rabbit hole the ultimate point is that you know as i've said in previous episodes i i i I want to cry you know i want to feel things and already starting hrt for anybody is going to be a huge step and this is no exception but i'm a sucker for symbolic resonance you know and there's a certain poetic quality to you know all of my friends are moving away and i'm starting from an empty house to filling it back up again and i'm going to another country and i'm about to finish school and embark on the rest of my life so there's there's already this huge literal like jump starting of my life you know kind of a resetting back to zero so I, you know, I might as well throw HRT into that. It's not going to make it any worse. If anything, it could make it a lot better. So I don't know that that hormones will have the effect that I want them to have as regards to uh, uh, traveling abroad. But I don't know. I, I want that experience. It It just feels right in some way that I can't really quantify and it'll probably be ultimately a horrible choice but it's the choice I want to make everybody just a really quick interruption here to remind you that i have a patreon patreon.com slash ltas it is primarily for my youtube show which has thematic resonance with this podcast but uh there i i talk about media different movies and video games and tv shows and all kinds of other stuff sometimes politics and uh I, uh, uh, I'm trying to make that my, my living, uh, on top of doing this podcast. So if you even have just a dollar a month to spare, it would be tremendously helpful to my financial future, as well as my own personal self-confidence. If you could go to patreon.com slash LTAS and pledge to give me just a little bit of extra money. I know it's a lot to ask. And these are financially tough times for basically anybody who is actually willing to give money. It's funny that like the poorest people are the ones who are the most generous. But um, your your money would not go, not be wasted, and it would be greatly appreciated. And there are all kinds of uh, perks and things involved with different like donation tiers, and you can check that out again at Patreon.com/ltas. All right, that's enough from me selling out to you. Please enjoy the rest of this episode. Uh...
I don't know why I always do that, dragging out those last syllables. So I want to talk about this piece that Carter Manier wrote for uh, Them magazine, or it's, I think it's a magazine. It's a, uh, uh, or it's a, uh, it's a website. I mean, I'm looking at it on the website. I, I thought it was a magazine, but there were so many single word feminist magazines that I, I kind of mixed them up in my brain. Anyway. Uh, Carter Manier wrote this piece for them, period. Like, that's the the way it's stylized, them and then a period. That uh, uh, is talking about... Well, the title of it is I'm a Disabled Trans Woman Who Loves Taking Selfies. And there'll be a link to this in the description if you want to read it for yourself. uh, Which I think should show up on iTunes. If it doesn't... um, it's my the website is podbean.com slash trans questioning podcast i think is what it is might not be that in which case you're out of luck i guess just google it you should find you'll be able to find it it's not it's it shouldn't be that hard anyway so this piece um it's it's fairly simple it's basically uh uh, if you follow carter manier on on twitter you'll see that she posts a lot of selfies and they are all very good and um, this is something so she she what she's writing about in this piece is that before she was out as trans, she uh, f- f- the one thing that she describes particularly is, you know, covering up the face that she didn't like and, uh, uh, and facial hair and, um, you know, just generally being uncomfortable with herself, uh, her body, which is something that I very much empathize with. And. There's yeah, so she describes this this uh, uh, deep dissatisfaction she had with herself, and um, part of coming to terms with being trans and sort of affirming her transness to herself, her femininity to herself, involved taking selfies and uh, discovering that there were angles that she could shoot of her face that. M- looked the way that she wanted to look and how that helped her gain more confidence in herself as a woman going about her life in the world and in a, in a very real way because she has a relatively large following uh, there's an aspect of like there are people who see her in the street and do a double take and, you know, maybe it's because they've clocked her as a trans woman or maybe it's because they recognize her from Twitter. And now just that variable makes those double takes a little bit easier to swallow. So I uh, I, I empathized with this piece a great deal, uh, in part because I have felt kind of the same way where I've, uh, I haven't, I haven't taken any selfies recently, but that's partially because I haven't been going out as much. So I've just been in my damn room by myself, uh, brooding, but I've, I've a very large part of, of coming to terms with being trans has been, um, 
grooming myself kind of for the first time in my life, taking pride in how I appear. And that's involved, you know, I've lost like 56 pounds since uh, August of last year. And I'm on a break from my diet right now, but I'm going to start it relatively soon again. But um, losing weight, starting to, to acquire clothes that are more uh, more complementary to my body shape and and uh, you know just just generally dressing up to look good in public and um, you know shaving more frequently and all of these other things and that that has brought me tremendously close to feeling comfortable in my body and and feeling close to my uh, my my femininity. I'm in a po- I'm at a mental space right now where I'm at the uh, the uh, doubting my transness phase, which is why at the start of this episode I kind of stuttered over saying Sarah and why I'm now kind of doing the same thing, talking about my femininity. <laughs> I mean, there's me laughing at trying to finish that word, um, but the point still stands, and that's you know temporary phase type thing normal trans stuff uh talked about it on the show quite a bit but anyway the selfie thing there is there is a very real aspect of that that's you know reclaiming your identity but uh reading this got me thinking about agency in general and how patriarchal heteronormativity sort of robs people of of their agency um i was originally going to do a twitter thread on this but i felt like it made it would be much better if i rambled about it on this podcast where people might actually hear it so there's an element of of normativity that is sort of there's it's based on a perceived majority right like white straight thin able-bodied um, uh, cisgender. These are the, the you know v- stereotypically beautiful, um, perfect makeup, uh, uh, d- designer clothes. Maybe he kind of like imagined the jocks in high school, the um, the the sorority fraternity folks. You you imagine them as normal or I do I should I shouldn't generalize because there are a lot of different experiences of this but there is a feeling uh, for me growing up there was a feeling of like there's this idea of normal that everyone should aspire to and what falls under the umbrella of that normalcy is a a very narrow definition of of uh, identity and so for the people who fit that that normalcy those are the people who have the most privilege right they're the ones who don't they are it, it, it's it's not necessarily true that they have more agency but it is true that the coincidence of their birth allows them to never have to question the the, the choices that they've made or that they've even made choices like their identity as it's presented to the world feels natural. Therefore it doesn't feel like a choice because they've never had to think about it 
it's just like a, a, a it's it's the logical conclusion of of their relationship with themselves and with society but for everybody who doesn't fit that definition they are constantly made aware of that fact and on top of that it takes forever to to extrapolate from that awareness your ability to thrive as someone who is still deviating from the norm and of course this is very different depending on which norms you deviate from people of color have a more difficult time um disabled people have a more difficult time it it and then there are all all sorts of different cross sections it just depends right but in a general sense one one feels inadequate in the face of normalcy and doesn't know necessarily why. I mean, in this piece, Carta talks about how she lacked the language to describe how she felt as dysphoria. And that's, I mean, that's me. Up until almost a year ago, not even a year ago, I uh, I didn't know, I didn't, even though I knew what dysphoria was and understood the trans experience, I didn't apply that to myself and uh, didn't know how to how to verbalize my own experience. So that 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 inability to quantify how you are different is is part of the hegemony, right? The the feeling that it's so ubiquitous that you can't even conceive of what's different to relate it back to films, which is my, my field of, of minor expertise. Um, there's this thing called invisible style, which is sort of Hollywood's stock, uh, approach to making movies, which is the idea that every element of production from editing to shooting to, uh, uh, set design and, and, and scripting and all of that, it, none of it is is meant to remind you that you are watching a movie. It's all meant to feel like it's a, a contiguous, self-contained reality where you can just sort of safely assume that everything that you're seeing on screen is meant to be taken as its own. Like it's 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 a story, and it's all diegetically self-contained. Um, which is why. There are so many like foreign films that people don't tend to like because they do draw attention to themselves in very specific ways. But uh, going through you know film history classes with a lot of freshmen, there's a very real sense of like when they're confronted with movies that are different from that that deviate from invisible style. They uh, they're very uncomfortable and they don't know how to describe what they're seeing. Because Hollywood is is uh, so ubiquitous, and 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 you know that style, invisible style, is taught to us as the rule. Like that's how you do it. You know, if you break the one eighty, uh, you're 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 wrong. You know, that's a mistake. And you know, I make the case that those rules are there for a reason, and there's whatever. But the the, the point is that. You know, we as Americans, we don't have a, a, a thriving sort of appreciation for non-English cinema. Uh, kind of 
more so than any other European country, or I don't know why I said any other European countries have much more of an appreciation for international cinema. So they're more uh, fluent in that, the different languages of cinema. Uh, We are not, we basically only watch American movies and, and, and not even that we mostly only watch American studio movies, which are even more hegemonic. Uh, And so when that is all you're exposed to, if you watch, you know, a Jean-Luc Godard film, you are so blown away by all of the deviations from invisible style that you, you know, it can it can border on the physically painful. And because you don't have the context of the French New Wave in relationship with uh, f- French poetic realism and uh, 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 prestige dramas in France and you don't have the context of the the uh, neo-noir or uh, uh, film noir in the 40s that inspired the French New Wave if you lack all of that context and don't understand how the the film how Godard was rebelling against norms himself um, if you just see that in a vacuum all you can feel is that like why is this filmmaker making so many mistakes you know they're breaking the 180 they're doing all these jump cuts they're just random asides that feel like they're pseudo diegetic like characters are addressing the 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 audience and we don't understand why the point is it takes an education to understand that deviations from the norm are not incorrect they are alternatives to the norm and that the idea of the norm itself is a flawed and ultimately uh, destructive uh, concept. And so the same is true for cultural norms. The idea of the cisgender, white, heteronormative, uh, able-bodied, normal human person makes everybody who doesn't fit that incredibly narrow mold feel inadequate, feel wrong. And from the other side, the, uh, the, the people who do fit that mold feel the same way about everybody else. You know, there's a disgust. Uh, you definitely see this with people who are overweight, where there's this knee-jerk like, uh, uh, <laughs> there's the, uh, the, the evergreen hot take that fat shaming is a good thing because fat people are unhealthy and they need to feel ashamed. They deserve to feel ashamed for their body. Um, and they need to take steps to fix that. Um, which doesn't take into account the fact that there are quite a number of people who can't help their weight because of uh, genetic abnormalities. Uh, there are a number of people who live in places or have so lo- such low income that dietarily it is impossible for them to avoid the kinds of foods that uh, uh, make them overweight. Um, there is just a general complete misunderstanding of, of the diversity of human experience that can make something not a choice. And that's the whole thing is that it's viewed from there as like, why are you choosing to be this way? You know, I don't choose to be that way. I don't choose to be overweight. You know, I just live my life and it's so easy for me. How can it be difficult for you to, to be, uh, uh, to, to, to not be thin, you know, which is, and a fundamentally privileged perspective. It's taking for granted 
that the things that come easy to you should come easy to everybody, but the things that come easy to you are only important in that they coincidentally line up with our societal norms of what a person uh, should aspire to be. And so the ease with which you fit that mold feels like the ease with which everyone should feel that mold, uh, fit that mold. And so part of the point of this podcast for me and, 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 you know, transitioning in general for people, I think is learning internally that deviating from the norm, you know, not fitting that mold isn't a factual incorrectness of self, but is rather a, a an equally valid alternative. And even saying alternative isn't isn't doing it justice because it's saying it's still kind of underlying uh, 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 enforcing the idea that there's a norm and then there's an alternative. The reality is that, uh, well. The, the ultimate reality is that there there is no like rigid column of experience. Everything is exists on a vague spectrum, and our desire to categorize everything is ultimately a futile attempt at making order out of chaos. But if we accept the idea that these categories do have some legitimacy to them, uh, if you if you imagine all of the various permutations of experience that we've been talking about as just vertical columns. Uh, there's not the one that is center and every all of the other ones behind them. These, these columns are uh, uh, parallel to each other and in equal standing in this room of identity, I guess. And no one is superior, uh, even if one is more common uh, among like from a purely statistical perspective. And even that we can argue that that is a, a coincidence of the enforcement of the norm that if, if we got rid of that idea of the, the rigid gender roles and the rigid sex relationships and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the beauty ideal and all of these other things, um, and I'm I'm not talking enough about race, but it's not. I'm white. I'm I'm criminally incapable of uh, of of uh, weighing in on that uh, perspective with any kind of authority. But uh, if we got rid of those norms, chances are there would be a higher statistical saturation of these different columns of identity because there would be no shame involved in aligning oneself with any of those columns. And I think a lot more people would be uh, polyamorous or in open relationships. I think we would probably do away with the idea of uh, queerness, I think, altogether, because my experience has been that you cross a certain threshold, I think, where the idea of a pure sort of sexual norm as far as your attraction is kind of uh, misguided I don't know I don't want to I don't want to diminish anybody's personal experience you know if if you are wholly and solely attracted to members of the opposite sex 
then that's that's fine and that's that's how you are whatever but but you know even just bringing trans people into the question you know if you're if you're attracted to women and you find out that a woman you're attracted to is transgender uh how does that affect things you know is it is it the genitals right or is it the role of the woman what is what is what does that mean and i think those roles are they're they're self-enforcing they are they're meant to police identity so that you don't step outside of that and part of the thing that i've i've touched on this in previous episodes the idea of like the the magical elements of being transgender where it requires you to step so far outside of the norm that you kind of become necessarily conscious of the artificial reality of norms as they stand and as a result uh you become a a much more fluid person uh in, in a number of ways and i think you know my my experience has been that i am uh I find myself entirely unmoved by the idea of a polyamorous relationship or an open relationship. Uh, I, I have no preference as to any sort of <laughs> gender or genital alignment. Uh, all I really care about is if there's a human being who I care about on the other end. And that might change uh, once I start hormones to some extent because I'm... I mean, I've thought of myself as asexual for a long time, and that's another sort of common experience for a lot of trans people. But um, there is a part of that process involves taking ownership of your identity and not feeling ashamed of it. And that's where the selfie comes in. It's an image of yourself that it's not somebody else's picture of you that's like, you know imagine some sort of peeping Tom passing by your window and seeing you experimenting with female clothes. So you're wearing a skirt or maybe a dress and they take a picture of you and they put it online and they're like, look at this, look at this freak. Um, it's you taking control of your identity and like constructing how you want to be seen and putting that image of yourself out to the world or even just for yourself you know, you don't have to post the selfie for it to be valuable. There's a very real power in 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 really claiming the agency of your own identity, in you know, constructing yourself and saying, giving giving the world no other option but to see you as as yourself, and taking away their opportunity to ridicule you for how you appear. You know, a lot of TERFs will say, you're so mannish, or you're so, uh, uh, you'll never be a true woman, or whatever. And the ultimate, most successful counter-argument to that idea is to be proud of your identity, and to uh, uh, parade it in front of them and sort of not not even accept the premise that womanhood is somehow inherent to any particular 
uh, alignment of gender role or genital birth or chromosomal alignment or anything else and is rather a a personal metaphysical uh, coincidence of psychological choice or alignment. Uh, I shouldn't say it's a choice. For, for many people, it is not a choice. And, and I mean, it's not really a choice for me, but uh, it's. It, 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 I distracted myself here because as I was saying that, I realized the closeness. How if you change the wording here, this this would be this would sound very much like a defense of white nationalism, and this is something that I, I I'm getting stuck on a lot lately is the um, uh, the the rhetorical closeness of different arguments where they're hypothetically arguing very different things but using the same devices to uh, to make those arguments so i i have i guess the difference let's see what is what is what is functionally the difference the difference would be that when when we're talking about you know uh having white pride um you're speaking from a place where that's still the norm, right? Uh, a person who is white isn't really ashamed to be white. The The thing that they're ashamed of, or that, that I should say, uh, the, the people who don't fit that mold want them to be ashamed of is the fact that their privileged position has made life difficult, if not impossible, for countless other human beings. And when presented with the reality of how their choices affect, or not their choices, but the own coincidence of their birth and um, their alignment of identity, how that affects other people, uh, it's easier to double down on your own identity. And like, what's really going on there is that for the first time in their lives, they're confronted with the idea that their identity is not inherent, but is rather... Uh, a series of choices that they did not make for themselves. The reality is that they have no more societal agency than I do uh, in the construction of their identity. And that is not something that they've believed for the majority of their life. And so suddenly it's like, uh, I, I have to believe that this is a choice. So now I'm going to make it be my choice. And, all that really does is enforce the norms that already exist. So like all of these things, it's, it's, it's a contextual differentiation where on the surface, it's the same essential argument, but we have to take context into account where I am arguing from a place of statistical minority and a societal, I, my first instinct is to say abnormality. I don't know if that's the right word, but the point is, that a, a trans person arguing for trans pride is doing that as a rebellion to a system which categorically and systematically punishes trans pride and being transgender in general. Um, there is no categorical systemic uh, uh, punishment for whiteness. So that's that. Don't come at me. Uh, punch Nazis. Anyway, um, so to close that out, I'll just say that 
in your own journey as a, as a human being, whether you're trans or not, um, there is tremendous value in self-reflection of what are the things about yourself that you assume or take for granted as things that you chose or things that are, you know, just a natural part of yourself. And how many of those things are actually things that you ever really thought about or chose? I imagine for most people, there are quite a number of things that they didn't actively choose for themselves. And in fact, these were things that were chosen for them uh, by their parents or their friends or their peers or just um, society in general. Um, to put it in the most general terms. There's tremendous value in that sort of introspection and, and discovering, you know, how inherent to my identity is my whiteness, my, my straightness. You know, when you feel that sort of uncomfortability when confronted with an alternative worldview, is it because you think it's wrong? Or is it because... It challenges your own perspective of your place in the world and your conception of yourself. And it's always worth it to take a step back and and recognize, like, maybe my perception of reality and my perception of myself is not fact and is not the norm in the sense of, like, it's not universal, I should say. Uh, and maybe everybody has their own version of reality that at times is worth taking into consideration and sometimes it's ridiculous but sometimes it is something to which you consciously or unconsciously contribute to um and maybe you know cis normativity is something that while you intellectually don't uh believe in or don't encourage or abide uh you still contribute to uh as i am certain that i do for racism i'm i'm i try very hard to monitor my day-to-day -day actions for any sort of potential microaggressions uh but i i'm sure there are countless things that i do and maybe that 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 practice in and of itself is a form of microaggression uh that is common among uh, over-eager white allies. Um, so, yeah, just take a moment to reflect on yourself and think about the ways that, uh, that society has shaped you that you might not be conscious of and uh, uh, see if that really brings value to your life. Um, read some Foucault, I guess. I'm just stealing all of this shit from Foucault, which I haven't read enough of to, to talk about at length. Um, and I'm sure he was a terrible human being who's not actually worth listening to. But he had some, some interesting ideas. I don't know. Maybe Hitler had a point. Fuck. Ugh. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Punch Nazis. Uh, fuck racists. Fuck Hitler. Um, be true to yourself. Take selfies. Find a constructed identity that makes you feel good about yourself. Uh, don't worry about society because everything is terrible and we're all going to die eventually anyway. And um, hopefully we don't 
have a nuclear holocaust in our lifetime. Man, this outro just took a really nihilistic turn, didn't it? I was building up to something really nice and positive and self-affirming, and I just twisted it and turned it into this whole fucking thing. Um, I don't know if there's any coming back from that. All right, see you next week. All right, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Once again, if you like what I do and want to support me in making more, check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash LTAS. You can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun or at TransQ Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun and at TransQ Podcast. The cover art for this podcast is by Emily Bumgarner. The music that you've heard is by Insane in the Rain Music. Thank you, as always, for listening. The uh, article by Carter Manier is in the description. And, uh, yeah, go find other things to do with your time besides listening to people bloviate in your ears. Uh, Live life. Uh, Don't do as I do. Okay? All right. Have a good one, and I'll see you in next eventual time then. Bye!